glad you're here today. We're going to jump into the Word together, hopefully have some fun studying God's Word this morning, and then Him transforming us in the process, which can be a painful thing, uh, but enjoyable. His Word is living and active. And I'm just going to pray that God would speak to us through His Word. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be again through this whole series. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, that we get to open up your scriptures, and I pray that you'd open up our hearts. I pray that you would humble us where we need to be humbled, and God, show yourself uh, glorious in our lives. I pray that you would cut and pierce our souls with your spirit and with your word, and I pray, God, that you would speak to me, even as I've studied this passage this week, I pray you'd speak to me afresh as I communicate this to those that you want to hear these words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I hope you had a great week this past week. As you think about your week, there's probably some good things that happened, probably some bad things that happened. I hope that the good things outweigh the bad things that had happened, but uh, think about your week this week. At our house, one of the things we do periodically at the dinner table is we'll play a game we call it high-low. And it's a trick, parents, by the way, for just one kid to talk at a time <laughs> during the meal. But it's a time where I go around and ask the kids, what's the high and low of your day? And each one will then share what was the high point of their day and what was the low point of their day. And so they've got to pick one thing. They can't tell me the summary of their whole day. They've got to tell me one high point, one low point. And so if I were to ask you to play that game with me and think about your past week, what would be your high what would be your low? This past week I was studying uh, for the message this coming week that we would present that I'd present to you today, and I was in my office, and I got a knock on the door, and it was Pastor Jason, our shepherding pastor, he came walking in, and he wanted to show me a video that somebody had put on their Facebook page, a member of our church, and so I guess that's public domain, and so he walked in and started showing me this video. I'm going to guess that this was not the high point of the guy's day from this video. We're going to show it to you. It's a garbage man who's picking up some trash. Maybe you've seen this. It's about a 40-second video here that you see his day. Good job so far. Somebody really stuffed that in there. No. I'm done with that. Yeah. That is a federal offense, if you're wondering. Go to the next one. That guy was ticked. That's an adult temper tantrum uh, that we just witnessed right there. Here's the sad part for the video. As I was watching it, Pastor Jason and I are standing there looking at his laptop. I start thinking about, I do that. I haven't done that. I don't pick up trash, so I haven't torn somebody's mailbox out of the ground. But I've internally had those moments before. And sometimes I've expressed them. Maybe you have as well. Did you lose it with the kids at all this week? Did you drive? Do you know that none of us can drive when it rains outside? Everyone who thinks that they're inside their car that no one else can drive. None of us can drive when it rains here. It rained this week. Maybe you hit the... Yeah, what was going on? Or maybe something happened at work. See, I think there was something more going on than just someone stuffed their trash can too tight for that guy. There were things that were happening in his life. And what we saw was the exact opposite of what we're going to talk about today as we continue to study happiness. And we see that happy are the meek. Not those who are angry, not those who are self-assertive, not those who are self-important, not those who are boastful, not those who are trying to seek their own plan, but the meek. And today's a message that would be very easy for you to go, I don't know if I believe that one, Jesus. And so we're going to open up the scriptures and see what he has to say. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, we'll continue going. If you haven't been with us, we've been studying what's called, oftentimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. 
uh, simply because Jesus sits on a mountain. We don't know which mountain, but he sits up on some mountain. He starts to preach this message. It becomes one of the most famous messages ever. And one of the reasons is because one of the things he's talking about is something we all long for, which is happiness. He gives these eight statements of blessing. We oftentimes call them beatitudes. Blessed are thou, blessed are thou. And it's got the same structure. It's a statement of happiness. Blessed, and then the person that's described today, the meek, and then this reason for, and here's why they should be happy, and here's why it is that these people would be happy. And so we're seeing this over and over again, same structure every time. But that word blessed that we see in the NIV that I'll read from in just a moment is actually a Greek term, makarios. It could also be translated happy or fortunate. Happy are the, and then why are they happy? happy? This description of people, and then why are they happy? But the word makarios means more than happiness like we oftentimes think about it. Oftentimes when we talk about happiness, we American definition is that we just think of good circumstances. It's a birthday party for you. Um, someone gave you an unexpected gift. You walked up to a stranger's door and they gave you candy. Something happened in your life and it made you happy based on circumstances, happenstances. Makarios means more than that. Makarios is that desire that's in each one of our souls and has been in the soul of every person who's ever walked this earth. It's a longing for an inner satisfaction and security that can only ultimately come from God, who is our source of happiness. And so then what Jesus does in this sermon is he tells us, I want you to be happy. The problem is many of us are on the wrong path to happiness. And so he tells us a different path. Let's look at it. I'll start reading in verse 1. We get the context for what we've seen. And these Beatitudes, they, they build on one another. And so we've already looked at the first couple. The first verse says, Now when he saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him. Now there's crowds of people coming around because in chapter 4, Matthew's just told us Jesus has been around healing every sickness. Everyone who comes to him, he's healing them. And he's teaching with a teaching they've never heard before. And so there's crowds, but then there's also his disciples. And so there's two audiences, but he gives one message. And the message is really just for his disciples. But the crowds can listen in, kind of like today. Some of you have committed your life to Jesus Christ. You've got the Spirit of God living in you, which means these things are possible in your life. And there's others that you're here for whatever reason. Someone said they buy you lunch afterwards. They pay for your run to reclaim registration. Whatever reason. You came to church. Maybe you're interested in spiritual things. Maybe you thought there was a movie afterwards and you just hang out. I don't know why, but you're here. You can listen in. These just can't be a reality in your life until you commit your life to Jesus. And Jesus has begun teaching to his disciples, those who've committed their lives to him, and he began teaching them by saying, verse 3, Blessed or happy, makarios, are the poor in spirit. Here's why. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy, blessed, makarios are those who mourn. And we saw last week that mourn over our sin. For they will be comforted, will receive the comfort of Christ. And then today's verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they will inherit the earth. Now, if you've been coming for three weeks, and you thought the first two were contrary to what our culture tells us, opposite of what we're constantly being told by the world, then this one is way more contrary. This is the, they, they build almost in controversy, if you were to think about the way that the, the world communicates things. What does it say? If you, only the strong survive. Survival of the fittest. If you want yours, you better go get it. No one else is going to give it to you. You've got to look out for you. Take care of number one. And Jesus says here, the happy are the meek. But then the next statement, because they will inherit the earth. The meek don't inherit the earth. Jesus, are you crazy? The meek get things taken from them. The meek get shoved off to the side and marginalized. The meek will have world domination, Jesus says here. Now try and imagine if you were one of the original listeners to the sermon. You were there in chapter 4, and that's why you're part of the crowd. Jesus is teaching, and so you're interested in his teaching. It's different than other teaching you've heard. He's healing everyone. Maybe he healed someone you knew. Maybe he healed you. 
And you're listening to this guy teach. Now you had expectations that when the Messiah came, based on the, the Jewish teachings of the Old Testament, that he was going to be a military leader. That he was going to overthrow the government, which was an oppressive government, which was taking stuff from the people that were working so hard. And so you've got hopes for what this guy's like. And then he teaches, happy are the poor in spirit. You bring nothing to the table. You're spiritually broke. That's what we talked about the first week. And then you see the darkness of that, and you mourn over your sin. He says, happy are those who mourn. That seems contrary to anything you've experienced before. But then he says this one, happy are the meek, for they're going to take over the world. They're going to get the whole world as theirs. And you've got to be thinking to yourself, no, 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 Jesus. The meek are weak. The meek get taken advantage of. The meek, they're not going to... But you know this guy works because he's worked in your life. And so now you have a decision to make. Am I going to believe what I naturally think is true, or am I going to trust this guy who's already changed my life? And what do you do? Because you've got to remember what Jesus is talking about through all of these statements of happiness are the opposite of what you're going to experience or what you're going to hear anywhere else in the world. And he said that from the very beginning. In chapter 4 and verse 17, his message was repent. Repentance means stop. You're traveling down a path. It's not the right path. Stop. Turn and go down a different path. You're pursuing happiness a certain way, and it leads to destruction. It leads to death. And Jesus says, turn. For, for why repent? For the kingdom of heaven is near. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And then we saw that he bookends these statements, these beatitudes with these statements. The, the same promise for the first one and the last one. In verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are the persecuted, really, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everything in between, verses 3 and verse 10, are about living as kingdom of heaven, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If we do it, then verses 13 through 16 become a reality that we become the city on a hill, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. But you can't just do what everyone else is doing. There's a different way. And Jesus even knows that not many people will believe this. He says at the end of Matthew chapter 7, He's speaking, it's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. At the end of his sermon, he says, this is narrow road theology. This is narrow gate. There's not many people to travel through it. There's not many people that are going to accept this. The question for us is, are we one of them? He says this, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through that. A lot of people believe that. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few will find it. And so we travel the wide road that we're constantly being told all the other times that we're getting a message on what's going to lead to happiness. Or maybe Jesus is right. But the reality is most of us will not travel down that path. Jesus even knows that. The question for you individually today is, will you be one of the few? And Jesus here says, happy are the meek. Who are the meek? Well, I'll give you a definition of who the meek are, and then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking it. The meek are those who humbly depend upon God, and then are freed, the result of that is, to selflessly serve other people. They humbly depend upon God. They've got a humble trust, a humble dependence upon God that frees them to then give their lives away for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so that's our main point today. The truly happy, humbly depend on God and selflessly serve others. And we're going to spend our time unpacking what that means because it's not just a definition I came up with. I thought, oh, that'll be memorable for people. Then, but you've got to see it from the scriptures. Jesus is the one who teaches this. That the humble, the humbly depending, the selflessly serving is what he means by meek. Because what do you think of when I say meekness? Quiet. Some people are shy. If you look up in an English dictionary, um, you'll get some personality traits. 
But I want to point out something to you. Jesus is talking to all Christians right now. He's not talking to certain personality types. We're not all supposed to have the same personality type. Some people are just, their disposition is nice. Some people are shy. So are some animals. We're talking about a work of the Spirit here. This is not just a personality trait. Jesus is talking about a character trait. When we think of meekness, we oftentimes think of weakness. When we think of meekness, we think of timidity. We think of people who are shy, people who are quiet. That might be your natural personality disposition. That doesn't mean that you are what this passage is talking about. In fact, if you look through the scriptures, you start to see what meekness is. The very first time the word's used is in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, and it describes Moses. If you think that weakness is what meekness is, this guy's described as the meekest man on the entire earth. Do you ever read about Moses? He's probably the strongest leader that's ever walked the planet apart from Jesus Christ. He leaves being the prince of Egypt. He leaves the palace courtyards of Egyptian kings. And he comes in and he starts to lead a band of slaves, a couple million of them, and leads a nation. He argues with the most powerful man in the world and proclaims plagues on him, plagues that he has no authority or ability in his own capabilities to pull off. He's totally depending upon God. And he's doing it for the sake of other people. He's called the meekest man in the world. In the context of Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, you can put that verse back up there. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3 says, another man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. So you've got the strongest leader on the face of the earth. is also described as the most meek man on the face of the earth. The context for what's happening is there's a couple people, his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, that are arguing about taking over his position. They want his honor, the honor that he's receiving. They don't want the pressure and the responsibility that he faces, but they want the glory that he gets. And so they're saying, God doesn't just speak to Moses, he speaks to us too. It reveals the jealousy and the pride in their hearts. And then Moses never asserts himself for the sake of himself. He's very assertive. He's very ambitious for God's glory. But he doesn't do it for Moses' sake. In fact, you read about when God comes to call Moses to lead this nation. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11, you see what his response is. Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? He has no even idea about the Red Sea situation that's going to happen. He doesn't have any idea about all the things that are about to take place in his life. But he says, why would you use me? Some people would say, well, it's about time, God. I've been waiting for you to come and tap me on the shoulder to change the world. That's pride. Some people would say, like, not me, because that is insecurity. Moses is neither. He doesn't have an arrogance, and it's not insecurity. Sometimes we mistake humility for insecurity. Insecurity is another form of pride. It's people with low self-esteem. Sometimes that's what we think humility is. Humility is not that you have low self-esteem. Humility is you're not thinking about yourself at all. You're over yourself. You have no self-importance. And what's interesting, when you look at our beatitude here, and you look at meekness, is each one of these builds on the other. And, of course, meekness would be the next one. It makes sense because we're poor in spirit. Remember what that is? We bring nothing to the table. We're like kids with their parents. You can't even, you don't even have the resources to take care of yourself. You need, you beg God to take care of you. Why are you so poor in spirit? Because of your sinfulness. So we mourn over our sins. That word for mourning, the strongest word in the New Testament for mourning, is like someone who lost a loved one. We mourn over our sin. Why? Because what we lose is our relationship with God because of our sin. And so then we would naturally be meek because we're humbly dependent upon him. And then what happens is it frees us, like Moses, to selflessly serve others. Look at Moses' life. He didn't do it every time. One time he blew it, and it cost the whole nation because he was saying, look, at, I'm the one who can make water come from the rock. And if you read the story, you might go, God, that's kind of a harsh punishment. You can't, you know, still God's glory. 
Meekness is a humble dependence. It's a natural outgrowth. When we have poverty of spirit, when we are mourning over our sin, then we're over ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I recommended his book to you last week on studying the Sermon on the Mount. He says that. It's a person who doesn't, they've, they've, they're over themselves. John Piper, when he talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he says that what's happening here at the beginning is that Jesus is describing the life to his disciples that an outsider would look at, that people from the crowd would look at, and then think about God. And so the question for us is, when people look at our lives, do they think about God? Because we're made in his image to bring him glory. When they look at our lives, do we cause them to think? How would we do that? Because we're so humbly dependent upon him and we're selflessly serving them that they automatically think of God. This is easy for me to define for you. In fact, I'll give you a lexicon definition, a Greek lexicon, which is like a, a Greek dictionary. It says this about meekness. It's someone who's not overly impressed with the sense of one's self-importance. Other words that you could use are gentleness or humility. And the other two times that this word appears in the book of Matthew, it describes Jesus and it's translated gentle. Come to me, I'm gentle and humble in heart. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. It comes in on a donkey, Matthew chapter 21, I think it's verse 5. A gentle, a meek appearance. But Jesus was strong. His whole life was there to serve. Easy for us to talk about. I can, I can teach you this from the Bible. Let me tell you something. It's not easy to live out. It's hard to just lay your life down for the sake of everyone else, not to think about your own rights, especially in the world that we live in that's continually telling us, look out for number one. Only the strong survive. If you want yours, you've got to go get it. And then you factor in all the stressors in our lives. Like you think about this guy going garbage can here. Why would, that was not just about a garbage can. Some other stuff is happening in his life. I read one study this week that said if you commute to work, and I know many of you do, if you commute to work, that you experience more stress in your life than a riot police officer or a fighter pilot. I read that and I thought, I don't think I'd buy that. But there is a lot of stress with commuting. And it did rain this week. You try driving at 8 o'clock in the morning or 5 o'clock in the afternoon when it's raining here. I've got a little, little experiment you can do. Maybe it'll rain this next week. Try to merge lanes. And use your blinker, people. Use your blinker. If you turn your blinker on, it's like a magnet, and all the cars behind you all of a sudden are in a much bigger hurry, and they start rushing up on you, and I see that, and you know what I think to myself? Yeah, just take care of yourself. I start talking sarcastic. I used to lose it like garbage can guy. Now I'm like, yeah, just proceed. You're more important. Go ahead. And I just start mocking them in my head, which is not a form of meekness, by the way. It's not an easy thing to actually implement. I was traveling a few weeks ago. I was in an airport in uh, Denver, Colorado. I'd spent a week in Colorado, and I was flying through this airport. I hadn't been there in about a decade, and so I didn't remember the airport. And I got there unusually early because I knew I had to drop off a rental car. And I was there beyond this prescribed time. They say they get there like an hour before you board, an hour and a half before the flight takes off. And I'm there, and I remember I checked the bag, and I walked in. I was like, man, that was easy. I'm going to kill some time. I'm going to get some food. And I'm standing up in this like food court type deal at their, at their airport. And I'm thinking, what do I want? I don't know if I want fast food, but I don't really want fancy food. And I'm kind of dig- bouncing around this. And I look down and I see a mass of humanity. Like there are just bodies just packed in. Over. I'm like, man, I'm glad I'm not down there. And then I realized that's the TSA line. And I haven't gone through that yet. And I just had slipped my mind. Like I was just there. And I thought, oh, I've got to go down there and get in line. So I realized I'm not going to be able to eat dinner. So I skipped dinner. And I go down there. I'm standing in line for about 20 minutes. Now, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not, I wasn't real good at story problems when I was a kid, back when they did math that way. I don't even know how they do it anymore. But when I was standing in line, I had gone in about 20 minutes, not very far, but I was going through those turnstiles. Do you ever see, you've ever been through those? Been to an amusement park or something? You just keep walking past the same people. They try to trick you into thinking you're moving, but you've moved like a couple inches in the process. And so I'm going through that thing. And I'm thinking, all right, I've moved this far so far. 
and I've got about this far to go, and I'm not going to make it. So I call United, which is the airline that I was flying on. I get them on the phone after all the, you know, press one, press three, they hang up on you, call back and do the thing, do that whole deal. Finally get a human on the line, and I say, hey, here's the deal. I'm here way ahead of time. I'm in this TSA line. There's no way I'm going to make it. Could you call the terminal and ask if they'd just wait for me to get through? I will hustle, I promise. I'll get right there. I said, we can't call them. I'm like, you are them. What are you talking about? You can't call them. I said, we can't call the thing. And once your flight, once you miss your flight, then we can help you out. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Send in the thing, and I, so then time goes by through that whole thing, and I, I'm past when it says on my ticket that my flight's boarding, and I know that it goes a little bit longer than that, and I get a little bit of time, but it's like 5.05, it said they started boarding just before 5 o'clock, my flight leaves at 5.20, and I've still got like 50 people in front of me, and these two dudes come walking up in suits, and they think they're real important because they've got briefcases and suits and stuff, they're like, well, can we cut our flights at 5.30? I said, no. <laughs> that wasn't meek either, by the way, and... Uh, then they go past me anyways. I go, hey, I said, no, you can't cut in front of us. I got a flight at 520. And they said, you come with us. I'm like, oh, all these meek people will let us. Okay. And so I went with them. And uh, we got through the TSA line. And I got through the thing. I don't have my shoes on. I don't have my belt on. And I realized this is one of those airports that's so big, you got to get on a train. And so I hop on the train. I put my shoes on. In the meantime, my shoe was broken, I realized. And put my belt. I'm like getting dressed on this uh, train that I'm traveling through. I'm the first person off the train. I run up this escalator. I'm running through the thing. I run as fast as I can. As long as my shoe's still on. You know, I was trying to keep it on. I'm sweating. Got gear, I'm holding my laptop and all that kind of stuff. And I am starting to imagine when I get there, if they've got the door closed, I'm ripping the United sign off the wall. I hadn't seen the video of the guy with the mailbox yet, but that's what I was about to do. I got there, the door was still open because some other flights were delayed, so they waited for me. I got on the plane, I sat down, I'm dripping sweat. The lady next to me has got to be like, oh man, why do I have this guy? And uh, I didn't even think for a second, God, maybe, maybe you had a divine appointment for me out in the lobby. Maybe you had a different plan for my life than my life. Maybe you just wanted to teach me how to wait. None of that stuff even crossed my mind. The meekness is a lot easier to talk about, and I can teach you what the Bible says about it. It's a lot easier to talk about than it is to live out. And with the tendency for some of us, I know myself, if I weren't the one standing here preaching this message, if I were listening to it, I'd go, oh, that's just not me. God just doesn't make me that way. I'm just not meek. Maybe I'm better at being poor in spirit. Maybe, maybe I could be persecuted. Maybe some of these other ones... But did you ever think that maybe, just the possibility, the reason why you don't experience the macarious kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about in this passage is because you're not meek. That you're actually robbing yourself of the very thing that you long for because you can't take your eyes off of yourself. Maybe that's the possibility. I mean, it's a narrow gate that people will travel through to walk down the path of being meek. Not many will do it. Will you? What does that mean? Well, you can go back to the Bible. We can look more. There's more to know here. and just teaching you a little bit about how to study the Bible, too. If you look at this verse, you can't just define it by looking at the Greek term or knowing the context, the immediate context of this verse and this situation. Why? Because Jesus is quoting an Old Testament verse here. So if you have a good study Bible or, or you go into a Bible commentary and it tells you, it'll tell you that Jesus is quoting an Old Testament verse here from Psalm 37 and verse 11. It's almost identical. Psalm 37, verse 11 says, But the meek will inherit the land. And so here it says, Earth would land and enjoy great peace. And so here it says, Happy, and then there it says, Enjoy great peace. It's almost the same verse, though. And so in order to really understand what this word means, you've got to know not only the context of Matthew chapter 5, which we've talked about, but you also have to know the context of Psalm 37. And so when he talks about the meek here, what does he mean by meek here? And the context for Psalm 37 is that the psalmist, David, is comforting the people who are experiencing 
evil people prospering at their expense. And then you, you'd naturally question God, right? Bad things happen in your life and other pe- people that are taking advantage of others seem to be doing well and you're not doing well and you're trying to be faithful and so why is this happening? And, and the context of what it says to do is verse five says to trust, to roll your cares upon him. And so trust, a humble trust, is naturally a part of this definition as well. It also says in verse seven to be still, to wait, to rest. A young lady from our worship team was singing today, Nikki Cullen, a few weeks ago shared a testimony with our church. She was quoting Psalm 46. And in Psalm 46, it says, Be still and know that I am God. And she said that uh, she, as a mother of four, she can't even imagine being still because the kids will probably burn the house down. You know, she talks about how she's always... But she, what she realized in her life was that what she's trying to do is control the situation. She's trying to make everything go her way, make everything look good. And then she, as she studied Psalm 46, she found that the, another translation of it is to cease striving. In fact, that's how the New American Standard translates it. So you can find an English version that actually says that, to cease striving. It's the same idea in Psalm 37. Not the exact same word in Psalm 37, verse 7, as it is in Psalm 46. But it's the exact same idea. In fact, it's translated twice in the Old Testament as ceasing. To stop going after your thing. That's part of meekness. It's not being so self-assertive. To stop striving after your stuff. And if you look at the, the Bible as a whole, by the way, you'll see when people strive, it doesn't go well for them. Adam and Eve. If you think happiness comes from perfect circumstances, read Genesis chapter 3. There's some perfect circumstances. Oh, but I think I know a better way. And I'm going to go get it. It doesn't go well for them. If you haven't read it, we're living it. You keep reading through the Bible, you see the Tower of Babel. They decide that the way that they're going to obtain happiness is we're going to build a name for ourselves. It doesn't go well for them. Ironically, in the next chapter, what God does is he calls a a meek man, Abraham. You know the guy who says to Lot, you take whichever land you want. He says, I'm going to make a name for you, Abraham. Because God's going to be the one that does it. You see Sarah and Hagar, Abraham's wife and his maidservant slash mistress, They decide they're going to have children. They're going to do it their way. It does not go well. But then when God's the one doing it, it's like God goes out of his way to show. You know, people that I really use are the ones that are not striving for their own thing. And so you read through the scriptures, you see see Moses. Moses has no shot at parting the Red Sea. In fact, that idea probably wasn't even in his head. But he's humbly dependent upon God and trying to serve these people. And what does God do? He leads them. You look at Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. Walk around the city seven times. Why why don't they just crush them? Like that is not a sound military. I'm not a military strategist. That is not a sound military strategy. Why is that happening? God wants to show he's the one doing the work. It's not a result of their striving. Gideon, I'd like you to have a lot less soldiers than you currently have. Not a sound military strategy. But God's going to get glory. And so when the nations talk about Israel, they don't talk about Moses. They don't talk about Joshua. They talk about God. Your God did these things. Your God is the one who. And even Paul says in the New Testament, when he talks about his thorn in the flesh, it's through our weaknesses that he's made known. Not through our wards, not through our accomplishments, not through our striving, not through our gifting, not through our stuff. It's through him working. So he tells Paul, no, I'm not going to take the thorn away from your flesh. It keeps you humble. This guy's incredibly intelligent, incredibly driven. I want to keep you humble. It's through your weaknesses that I will be made known in your life. And so then Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses then because that makes God known. And so think about it in your life. What if, what if this was true? 
Does that mean you just do nothing? Does that cease striving? Is that what it looks like? Just sit back and be passive? No, that's not what it looks like. But you stop striving for yourself. You stop going after your stuff. It's like uh, George Mueller, great example. We talk about run to reclaim and trying to support orphans. George Mueller's a guy who started a bunch of orphanages, impacted a bunch of children that didn't have parents, that needed to see the gospel put on display. If you read about George Mueller, you'll find he was not a guy that lacked ambition. He read through his Bible cover to cover almost 200 times in his life. He was a guy that continually was raising money for orphans without ever asking anyone directly for money. He never asked someone directly for money. And he raised what would be the equivalent modern-day currency of millions of dollars for orphan care. And you look at his life, though, it wasn't about him. The last 68 years of his ministry, he didn't take a salary at all. He just said, God, you're going to provide by laying it on other people's hearts, my needs. Whatever they are, you will provide for them. And so he was humbly dependent upon God for the sake of selflessly serving other people, the least of these other people. The ultimate example of what meekness looks like is Jesus Christ himself, who didn't come to this planet because he thought it'd be cool to hang out on earth for a little while while he was up in heaven. He didn't just wonder, I wonder what it's like to be human. I think that I'll come as a baby born in humble circumstances with a bunch of animals around and see what that works out like. He came here to serve. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. What's the ransom? Well, he has to pay a penalty. It's your penalty. The penalty for your sins. The wrath of God has to come upon him. And he knew that the whole time. And it gets described in Philippians chapter 2. When Paul's exhorting the Philippian church, his favorite church of the churches he writes to, he's exhorting them, don't, think about God's kindness for you. Think about God's love for you. Be unified and don't do anything that's selfish. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Stop living your life for yourself. Stop doing what the world's telling you to do to obtain happiness. Give your life away. He says, each of you should not look to your own interest, but also the interest of others. And then he describes someone who did it, Jesus. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who didn't look out for his own interest, but was looking out for the interest of others, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Pause right there. What are Adam and Eve doing in the garden? They're grasping something that doesn't belong to them. What is Jesus doing? He's not holding on to something that does belong to him. His rights is God. And what do we do? Only you can answer that. He didn't hold on to something. He didn't think of something to be grasped. But he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Is that true or is that just poetic language to put in Philippians chapter 2? And you start thinking about his life and how did Jesus serve? Just hours before he's about to go to the cross. We did communion last week. He's at the, the Last Supper with his disciples. He looks around, he sees they all have dirty feet. Now this is Jesus who spoke the world into existence. John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's describing Jesus. And now here he is sitting at a meal, and he sees dirty feet. He created the dirt, and he created the feet. He's got authority. He could say, Peter, clean these feet. Judas, clean these feet. But instead, he gets up. In John chapter 13, I think it's verses 3 and 4, say that he knows who he is. He knows where he's going. And he knows that he's going to be seated at the right hand of God again. Interesting commentary, John. Why are you telling us this before he does this menial task? Because what John's showing us is, Jesus' issue was not that he was insecure. His issue was that he was humble. See, it's our insecurity that usually stops us from being able to serve other people. 
It's our insecurity. What, what are they going to think about us? How's this going to... Jesus doesn't care about any of that. He knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. Do you? So we know our position in Christ. We know who we are. Who cares what happens to our life here? It's our insecurity that stops us. Jesus, he watches Judah's feet and Peter's feet and all their feet. But that wasn't the ultimate demonstration of his service. Think about the, what this, the rest of this passage says in Philippians chapter 2. He became a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. How? Humbly depending upon his father. He only does what his father tells him to do. He's obediently obeying his father, and he's selflessly serving us. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross which to us as Christians can sound cliche because we've heard it so many times. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Almost every church, hopefully, in the triangle will say that statement this week. And we can describe it. We can get into details. The thorn crowns on his head, getting stripped naked, beard getting ripped off, floggings, all that stuff. Do you realize that Jewish listeners couldn't even talk about this? It was offensive. The Old Testament teaches anyone who dies on a tree is cursed. Jesus goes to die on a tree and he's cursed for you. It wasn't for him. It was for you. And then the Bible tells us he did it in joy. How does anyone get tortured in joy? Hebrews chapter 12. Look at that verse and put it up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We just were told to have the same attitude as him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Who endures the cross with joy? Scorning at shame. Oh, there was a lot of shame associated with the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, the place where God, he knew who he was. He knew where he was going. And he knew what he was doing. He was dying for you. The joy was you. It was knowing that you could be reconciled to God because he was paying that ransom, the payment for the penalty for your sins that you deserved. He was taking on himself at the cross as he was humbly depending upon the Father. This is the only way. There's no other way. Let this cup pass for me. It's the only way. I trust you. I'm going to the cross, the worst kind of death possible. Why? For the sake of these people. And it's a joy for me because then we get to be reconciled. Can you imagine if you were that free in your life? If someone could, you could kill me, it's okay, because my life isn't mine. I'm over myself. I'll give it away. We can't even wait at the airport. Hmm. Imagine how freeing it would be to experience this meekness. You know what? Jesus died to forgive us of the guilt of not being meek like this. And he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which then empowers us to pursue this meekness. Imagine if it was true in our lives, how different our individual lives would be. Imagine how different church would be. This church, any church that you become a part of, any church, anybody that starts to do this. Imagine what it would be like. People wouldn't care about their own interest. I hope that this speaks in, I hope this today's sermon has something to do with what's going on in my life. Who cares? It's not all about me. I hope God's glorified. I just want to know the word. We'd study the scriptures and we'd be together with one another because we wouldn't be just doing our own thing. We'd want to care about what's happening in each other's lives. We'd be praying for each other. We'd be giving of ourselves. We'd take the mask off. Who cares if people know the junk that's going on in my life? Who cares what's happening? I just want to share life together. Just be real. That's what church is supposed to be. Uh, Acts chapter 2 actually describes that's what the early church was like. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's God's word. And a fellowship. The bringing of bread and a prayer. They hung on together. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I wonder how many miracles we miss out on because of our own selfishness and quenching of the Spirit. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. doesn't mean they were all alike and have all the same personalities. So they shared with one another. 
selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together. They were glad and sincere in hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People looked at it and they thought about God and they wanted to be like those people. And so they trusted God. And they humbly depended. They were broken in their spirit. They mourned over their sins. They turned. They repented. They were headed down a path and they stopped and they turned. As a result of seeing those lives, we talk about it as church 10x. Who would care about 10x? If we lived this out, we'd reach everybody that came into our lives because we'd realize every person God brought into our lives was for a reason, and it wasn't our selfish consumption. It wasn't to use them. It'd be to point them ultimately to Him. So we wouldn't have to focus in on just one person a year. We'd, every person we came into contact with, God, how do you want me to bless them? How do you want me to care for them? How do you want me to share the gospel with them? How, are you going to give them the opportunity? We just don't think that way because we're not meek. So why are the meek so happy? Well, the second part of the verse, verse 5, for they will inherit the earth. This is a future one. In Psalm 37, when it says it, they're talking about the promised land. The psalmist is talking about Canaan. In the New Testament, we're talking about the new heaven and the new earth. You're going to get an inheritance. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Happy are the meek. Why? For they will inherit the earth. That means you get everything. Let me phrase it, a little paraphrase for you. You can afford to be happy. Because I don't, I don't know every person that's listening to these words, but every person that I know that goes to this church, you have a budget. You've got a limit. You've got some amount of money that's, uh, that's limited. You have to say no to certain things. You can't afford to do them. Now, if you're a person uh, that has so much money, you don't even know what to do with it, I'd love to go to lunch with you afterwards. We could talk to you about how you could use it for the kingdom. Uh, but you've, maybe you, this doesn't apply to you in this, this analogy, okay? So you've got just so much money, you're just burning it for fun after church today. But then the rest of us, you've got something. You don't go on some vacations because you can't afford it. You don't buy some meals because you can't afford it. You don't, you don't buy certain purchases because you can't afford to do them. And some of us, we think that we can't afford to be meek because we're giving away pieces of happiness. I can't. Give up my time. I've got to be stingy with my time because I only have so much of my time. And it's my time. My money. It's my life. So we don't think we can afford to be meek. And what Jesus is telling us here is, you're going to get everything. It's all yours. If you knew you were going to inherit a whole bunch of money tomorrow, how would that change how you'd use the money you have today? Think about what is being promised here. But see, the problem is most of us, we don't think about eternity very often. I was riding in the car with uh, my daughter Ava the other day. Ava's our second oldest. She's eight years old. And we were hopping in the car. And I don't know what all the rules are on you know, when they can stop wearing motorcycle helmets and being strapped into airplane pilot seats and all that kind of stuff. And we were hopping in my car. And she wanted to sit in the front seat. And I said, well, would mom let you sit in the front seat? Well, I don't know. Mom will let me sit in the front What's the rule? Why is the rule? And she's like, i got to be a certain height. And said, the seatbelt's coming across like her neck. I was like, You're, if you get your head cut off because we get in a car accident... I don't want you blaming me for this. When we get to heaven and you walk up to me with no head, I said to her, I said, I don't want you complaining. She said, Dad, there's no complaining in heaven. It's like, oh, good point. Where you go? Points for you in our conversation. And I said, all right, well, here's the deal. I thought I'd take complaining off the table. I said, but if you come walking up to me and you've got your head in your hand, I don't want you saying that it was my fault and that you have to walk around eternity forever with a head in your hand. Okay, so just don't do that. She said, Dad, we're not going to have these bodies in heaven. All right, you're, you're winning this theological debate, eight-year-old. And I said, I just said, Ava, you're so smart. And she goes, of course I'm smart. I do two pages of math every day. I didn't know math was the way to figure out eternity. But okay, she's got something here. And then I'm studying this passage this week, and I'm going, that's what Jesus is saying. Math and eternity. You get everything. Forever. How many years is that? Uh, unlimited. And so you live here for, say, 70 or 80. 
and you're going to grasp and hang on to all the stuff that's not even really yours that you're going after, like Eve in the garden? Or are you going to live in light of the inheritance that you receive? The key word in this verse, inheritance. For they will inherit. It will be given to them. They don't take it, not military conquest. It's going to be given to them. All of it. All, the, all of heaven, all of the new earth, it's all yours. It's all throughout the Bible, this language. We just tend to read over it because we don't think about eternity very much. Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 18. The Apostle Paul writing, he says, I pray that these Ephesian believers, their eyes may be enlightened, that your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Guess what? His riches is everything. He owns a cattle on a thousand hill. He owns it all. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? A couple people yesterday. Say amen if you believe Jesus died for your sins. Most of you said amen. Some of you might be introverted. Some of you maybe haven't trusted Jesus yet. Totally understand that, but you know whether you believe that or not. Romans chapter 8 says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It's all ours. 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, he's talking about who's going to get the kingdom, who's not going to get the kingdom. And so I'm going to jump into a verse. There's some context before that you can read. But in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, it says this. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanderers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Remember our context? Verse 3, there's the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And verse 11, and that is what some of you were. You were swindlers. You were greedy. You were drunkards. Because of the death of Jesus, you were washed. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And earlier in chapter 3, he's talking to the Corinthian church who's arguing about, well, I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul, and I do this, and it's all the selfish stuff that they're talking about. And then he, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours. So that's why there's no more boasting about men. Whether Paul, because Paul's yours, or Apollos, because he's yours, or Cephas, because he's yours, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, are all yours. How do we just read over this? And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. You get God. And so we're going to live here like, I just got to buy this nice sweater, get a new iPhone. Seriously? You get it all. Who cares if they take your life? Who cares if they cut your head off? You get it all. Shouldn't that change how we live here? But few. Narrow is the road. Few will do it. You go get yours. Only the strong survive. You've got to decide which one you believe. Let's pray. Father, I'm sorry. We're sorry for how much we think about ourselves. How highly we think of ourselves, how lowly we think of ourselves, whatever we're doing to think about ourselves, how much we think about ourselves. Even when we talk about happiness, we're so self-centered in the way we think about it, God, but it's about you. You're the source of joy. Help us to see you. Help us to see what you've done for us and your selfless service of us on the cross. And you're giving your life for us as the example that we'd keep our eyes on the... These wouldn't just be verses we'd read, but we'd have the attitude of your son Jesus. We'd have our eyes on the, your son Jesus, that we'd want to make a big deal about your son Jesus, and we'd get over, we'd get bored with talking about ourselves. And then we'd be willing to give our lives away for your kingdom, whatever that looks like, how obscure or difficult or whatever that means, that you would bring us to that place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.